Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. Today is November 22nd, 2021. This is, of course, the 58th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy at 12.30 p.m., November 22nd, 1963. And those who have followed this podcast have noticed that there are, from time to time, episodes in which I talk about the Kennedy assassination Again, the JFK assassination, because there are actually two Kennedy assassinations, of course. But I talk about it because, well, why do I talk about it? That's a good question. It certainly isn't because there's a great deal of mystery as to who done it, as in many mysteries. In the case of the JFK assassination, there really isn't any mystery. The Warren Commission, of course, launched an intensive investigation in 1963-64, and it's certainly true that the JFK assassination is the most studied, most examined, most heavily scrutinized murder in history. Now, of course, the Warren Commission made some mistakes, and they were hindered because some of the agencies of the government, such as the CIA and the FBI, did not disclose information that it had to the Warren Commission. And so, because of those gaps, it was necessary to have some follow-up investigations in the years to come. But those things have happened. We've had a House of Representatives investigation in the 1970s, and there have been all kinds of individual investigations over the years by many experts in the field, And there has been scrutiny by some excellent writers, such as Gerald Posner and Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote over a thousand pages on the assassination in the early years of this century, trying to lay to rest all these conspiracy theories. So the JFK assassination has been the most explicated, best explained murder in the history of crime. Yet legions of readers just won't take the truth for an answer. Of course, our society has become a model for truth denial, from evolution to the big lie about the election of 2020. So maybe our time has given another push to the big lie of the last half century, the lie about a conspiracy in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The people who most believe in conspiracy theories, of course, are the one-book wonders. In other words, people who read a single book and suddenly they think they know all for all time. The number of conspiracy books is in the thousands, just about the John F. Kennedy assassination alone. And since the non-conspiracy books could probably fit on a small bookshelf, it's no wonder that the one book most people read, if they only read one book, is a conspiracy screed. So why do I have episodes from time to time, and I still write, and I write a scholarly article now and then, about this seemingly dead issue? 
why does it still deserve to be talked about? Besides the fact that it illustrates the American people's fixation upon conspiracy theories. And I could do another podcast recording on all the conspiracy theories that have littered the pages of history throughout American history, from the revolution, through the antebellum years, the civil war, populism, conspiracies about the First World War and American entry into that war, conspiracy theories about Pearl Harbor, and the list can go on and on and on. There is something that makes Americans want to believe in conspiracies, and I'm not sure what it is, but actually that's not the most interesting thing that I see about the Kennedy assassination. There are two things about it that I see as interesting, and these two things represent the subject matter for most of the things that I write about the Kennedy assassination. When you look at the micro level of the assassination and analyze the most popular of the micro controversies, for example, the single bullet theory, it is easier to see how the buffs go off the rails, how the conspiracy buffs make profound mistakes. In other words, if you want to convince a conspiracy theorist that they're wrong, the best way to do that is to break down a particular controversy into its fundamental parts and then show them the error of their ways. Of course, Americans don't like to be shown the error of their ways, and it doesn't work with all conspiracy theorists but I think it's the best hope for educating people in the reality that there just was no conspiracy and could not have been a conspiracy. By examining each conspiracy theory at its micro level and seeing the holes that exist in each, each of them fall apart in spectacularly obvious ways. So telling each story is a good way to reintroduce sanity in the discussion and review the findings of the Warren Commission and the Warren Report, which the conspiracy buffs notoriously deride without ever having read it. So this is one of the great ironies of the JFK assassination, that everybody piles on the Warren Report and the work of the Warren Commission but nobody bothers to read the Warren Report along the way. It's also interesting to look at the issue of the standard of evidence at work in those convinced by feverish speculation that there must have been a conspiracy. Standards of evidence, of course, are important and crucial in the resolution of any crime mystery, but not everybody brings to the table the same standards of evidence. Some people will believe something just because of an allegation. And of course, an allegation is not the same thing as evidence. You have to have specific material evidence to support an allegation. The allegation can come first, but then you have to have evidence to support it. And also, of course, you have to have evidence that holds up in the face of other evidence. Because when evidence contradicts one another, then it becomes incumbent upon the analyst to say, well, are there any corroborating instances of evidence 
that support one side or the other in this dispute. In that case, let's say you have a, an assortment of examples that support a particular allegation, and you have a counter-allegation that's supported by only one piece of evidence. Well, in order to disprove the allegation that has the most evidence in favor of it, you have to disprove all of the other pieces of evidence that are consistent with that particular allegation. Whereas with the other allegation, if there's only one piece of evidence that is suggestive of its truth, then all you have to do is disprove that one piece of evidence and the allegation falls apart. At any rate, what's generally done is that we use the same standards of evidence from one criminal case to another. Otherwise, we are stacking the deck and we are opening ourselves up to some basic criticisms of our methodology. But fundamentally, the thing we have to do before we do anything is come clean about what our standards of evidence are. And that's another thing that I like to write about because standards of evidence differ between the professions of law, for example, history, and fantasy, if you will. So if you want to sell books, you don't need very high standards of evidence. You just need a lot of fantasy, a lot of flash and razzle-dazzle, a lot of blue smoke and mirrors, and maybe you can convince some people to buy your book and to believe your tale. But if you are going to present a theory that is deserving of belief, you need reliable standards of evidence. And first of all, you need to know what those are. So that's another thing I like to write about. And that explains, I think, my interest in this subject. In the next episode in this series, we'll take a look at one of these micro theories. And we'll also take a look at the issue of standards of evidence by looking at one particular set of standards that has stood the test of time and that may be used with profit in an understanding of the Kennedy assassination. In this episode in our Controversies of the JFK Assassination series, we look at the reasons why people believe in conspiracy in spite of the lack of real evidence to support such a belief. Obviously, uh, some people would say if there's smoke, there's fire, smoke being evidence. But in fact, the reasons why people have come to the conclusion that there must have been a conspiracy in the JFK assassination is largely not to do with evidence at all, but other factors which were present during that time in American history and have been rather curious but important reasons that have arisen in the years since 1963. Now, some of these items on the list that I'm going to give you, I must credit to Lachlan Bloom, a professor of law in Texas, who was part of a panel that was analyzing the Warren Commission on the 50th anniversary of the assassination in 2013. But I will also have some reasons of my own. First of all, let's look at uh, some of uh, Professor Bloom's reasons. 
One of the reasons is that very few people have bothered to read the Warren Report. It's a single volume. It's very well written. It's very powerful in its defense of the theory that one man shot the president and only one man. But very few people have read it, as Professor Bloom pointed out. And he also pointed out that by 2013, there was a remarkable book by Howard Willens, History Will Prove Us Right. Willens was the Justice Department representative on the Warren Commission in 1963-64, and he wrote a history that was published in 2013. But very few people have read either of those highly detailed and largely academic books that happened to be written by lawyers, but uh, were quite respectable from an historian's point of view. Another reason why people believe in conspiracy, as Professor Bloom points out, is that now that we've gone almost 60 years since the assassination, people still talk about the possibility of a conspiracy. In other words, one could argue that 60 years is a long time not to demonstrate the existence of a conspiracy. So if anything, the passage of time should cause people to disbelieve in conspiracy. However, some people flip that around and say, well, it's been almost 60 years and you have not definitively disproven the possibility of a conspiracy. You haven't disproven it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, of course, there's a problem when you try to prove a negative, prove that something didn't happen. That's more difficult than proving something did happen. Um, it's not impossible, but it is a complicating factor that people don't give enough credence towards. And so there are just some people with personality who say that, well, uh, there's, there's all these people and all these books that say that there was a conspiracy and where there's smoke, there must be fire. That's not really evidence, but it is a phenomenon that clearly exists. A third factor, and Bloom also pointed this out, is that the government has been increasingly distrusted since 1963. And distrust of government has been encouraged by presidents from Reagan to Trump. And the Warren Commission was established in one of the last periods in American history when uh, leaders were trusted implicitly. But that was not to last very long because right around the corner, of course, you have the Vietnam War, you have Watergate, you've got the Pentagon Papers, and all of these things spotlighted the lies that government was telling the people in the immediate aftermath of the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission's work. And of course, a lot of people associated everything that went wrong with America after the assassination with the assassination. And so this distrust of government, which has only gotten worse over time, is a leading factor in the reason why people don't trust what the government says about the assassination or what uh, mainstream writers say about the assassination. 
So that, that factor has definitely bolstered belief in conspiracy, but that's not evidentiary either. Fourth, as Bloom put it, the story of the assassination is weird. There are so many weird factors, said Bloom. And he's got a point. I'm not sure it's a solid argument, as you'll see in a second. But uh, according to Bloom, it's weird that Oswald happened to get a job on the exact route that Kennedy's motorga motorcade uh, passed by. It's weird that, uh, that Jack Ruby was able to get into the basement of the uh, Texas jail and shoot Oswald. It's weird that Oswald was a defector to the Soviet Union and then was allowed back in to the United States and even helped by the State Department to get back to the United States. It's weird that Oswald tried to surrender his American citizenship in 1959 to get into the Soviet Union, but the American embassy would not allow him to do so. And the, the list of weird things associated with the assassination, according to Bloom, is a very long list. Well, the reason I don't agree with Bloom here is because Things naturally seem weird when something momentous happens and you can see a certain distribution of facts that had to come together in order to make this momentous thing happen. But if we do a thought experiment and think, well, suppose there was no Kennedy assassination, then none of these supposedly weird things would seem to be weird. None of them. Nobody would care. And so uh, this is kind of a stretch in my view, but it does have a certain logic. I would argue that the continued delay in releasing the JFK documents that Congress in 1993 agreed should be released by 2017 is another factor encouraging belief in conspiracy. What is the government trying to hide? The government itself said it would release these documents by 2017, but they've been released in dribs and drabs. They're still being held up. Uh, just last week, I heard that President Biden is not going to release the last tranche of documents as planned on schedule at the end of October 2021. So uh, the government is really shooting itself in the foot by engaging in this type of obstructive behavior. The reason why it's not significant in an evidentiary sense is because 99% of the documentation has already been released and the commission that engineered the congressional law to release the documents looked at the other 1% back in 1993 and did not find anything. In other words, they looked at all the documents, including the ones that still haven't been released. So this is just bureaucratic punctiliousness, and yet it seems to be a suspicious thing to a lot of people. And uh, those people who are demanding that the government release the last documents are really trying to remove this as a source of conspiracy theorizing. They don't believe that there was a conspiracy either. But they recognize 
that the government's mishandling of this release of the records is encouraging people to believe in a conspiracy that really doesn't exist. Another factor, and this is something also that Bloom talked about, was that some people have a pecuniary interest, a financial interest, in writing lurid books that propose that some kind of sinister assassination was concocted by insiders in the government or the mafia or the CIA or the FBI or any other number of colluders. And just the sheer number of such books out there is one reason for conspiracy theorizing. Too many people believe that, that if a book is published, that it must have been vetted and it must be respectable to some degree. But that's not true. There are plenty of publishers that are eager to put things in print just because they'll sell copies. Another factor, and I think this is important too and has been unrecognized, is that historians who are otherwise quite respectable have not bothered to read much about the Warren Commission investigation and have criticized the Warren Commission without thoroughly appreciating the error of their ways in doing so. In other words, there's a lot of people who say that the Warren Commission investigation was slapdash, and when I say people, I mean historians, like Michael Beschloss and Larry Sabato, and they argue that the Warren Commission was irresponsible in its work, and they, they should have known better, because... These are respectable historians, historians who have done much good work, but they fall victim to the tendency to believe that the Warren Commission did something horrible and was totally clueless or even part of a conspiracy. Now, Beschloss and Sabato don't say that, but they do criticize the Warren Commission for a slapdash job when, in fact, the Warren Commission did a perfectly legitimate job, and its findings have stood the test of time. Another factor is that the rest of the historical community, because they have assumed that the Warren Commission did a pretty good job and basically got the facts right, have not waded into the subject of the Kennedy assassination because they think there's nothing more to say about it, but also because, particularly if they are young scholars, they don't want to jeopardize their careers by engaging in a subject that has very little potential for new ideas or new findings and that might be associated in many people's minds with the conspiracy buffs. In other words, there's no profit in saying I'm going to do a dissertation on the JFK assassination when people are going to assume that means you think that there's something to the conspiracy argument and most historians, most historians committees think that that's just crazy. So it is crazy, but there are avenues for research as this series shows that would spotlight the reasons why people believe in conspiracies in spite of the facts. And unfortunately, historians have run from this subject because they, there doesn't seem to be a much profit to the building of a career upon it. So those are factors that explain, in my judgment, 
the belief in conspiracy theories with respect to the JFK assassination. And if you review this litany of reasons, you'll see that none of them have anything to do with evidence of conspiracy. They have to do with the psychology of people, and they have to do with the temper of the times in many respects. But they also have to do with unfortunate reactions by people like historians and greed in the form of conspiracy writers who know that what they are writing or should know that what they are writing has no scholarly or academic or factual validity. Some of them, I guess, don't know that, but they certainly weren't trained to be professional historians. And maybe just because a lot of Americans like to believe in conspiracy. But also this distrust of government, which has lasted a long time. We'll talk about Oswald's life, which is part of the argument that the assassination is weird in so many ways. Uh, and we'll see whether that holds up, whether Oswald's place in the assassination story is really all that weird. And so we'll talk about that in one of our controversy series. Until then, thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye. That's it for today's episode of AudiblySpeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on AudiblySpeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.